Have you ever wondered why God created humans? Have you wondered before, why did God create humans? He didn't need companionship. God didn't need, nor does he need, anything from us. God is completely self-sufficient, self-contained, self-satisfied. In fact, you might remember our theological vocab word from three weeks ago, which was aseity, which is the doctrine that says that God is totally and completely self-sufficient. He lacks nothing. He has everything he needs to be God. And since God needs nothing from us, then a good question to ask would be, why did he make us? We could answer that question, as we did last week, in part by saying that God created us for communion and for communication. God created us to commune with him, to relate to him in right relationship through the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. We call that communing with God, relating to God. We also saw last week that Being made in the image of God means we are also created to communicate something to the world. We're made to communicate or reflect, if you prefer, the character and the attributes of God to the world. We are made to live in such a way that that people around us see the Lord Jesus Christ through us. And in these two ways of communing with God and communicating about God, we are made to love God the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And all of this is true. In fact, we see it reflected here and taught here in Genesis chapter 1, and it's foundational. But there's more here in Genesis chapter 1, because God also reveals to us that we are created by him for a mission, for a purpose. Or we could say, as we think about what it looks like to communicate and reflect God to the world, God has gotten more specific in demonstrating to us what it looks like to reflect him to the world. He's given us a mission, and that mission is our focus this morning. Now, before we get into the specifics of what this mission is that we have been given by God, it's helpful, I think, to notice That the mission itself that God has given to us is a part of God's blessing. It's a part of his blessing of us. Just look at chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of God's blessing is this mission that he gives to us, the filling and the subduing that we're going to look at this morning. In other words, we could say that everything we talk about this morning is under the heading of the blessings of God. Now, with that being said, I I think it might be helpful for our time together this morning to kind of step back for a moment and see how everything we're going to talk about fits together. So if you're like an engineering kind of person or a math person, hopefully this will be helpful to be able to see this with your eyes with this graphic. 
So you can see that our primary mission given by God is to fill the earth and subdue it. We could say that that's kind of a subcategory of what it means to reflect God or communicate the glory and splendor of God to this world. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at our primary mission, which is filling the earth and subduing the earth. And under filling the earth, we're going to kind of break that down because I think that's what God does here as he's communicating to Moses and Moses now communicates to us that filling the earth can be divided up into two categories, procreating and disciple making. We're going to look at that. And then a little bit later, we're going to come to part two, which is subduing the earth. And we're going to find that there are essentially two things that the text reveals to us that it means when we talk about subduing the earth, which is having dominion over the animals and working and keeping the ground. That's kind of the roadmap of where we are going to go. So let's first begin with filling the earth What does it mean to fill the earth? After all, these important words, go and fill the earth, are not just spoken by God here, but are also spoken by God elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, these are the exact words that God gives to Noah after the flood when God tells Noah, he blesses Noah, and he says to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The earth. Again, notice, same words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And notice that this is a part of God's blessing to Noah. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, we can say that filling the earth means procreating. Just as God blessed the rest of creation, God blesses the man and the woman. And we regularly see throughout the Bible that one of God's blessings are children. For example, Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So, According to Scripture, raising faithful, God-honoring children is a strategic and important part of God's creation mandate for humanity. Now, why are children good? Why are children to be desired? We could create a long list, but here's a start. Children should be desired because they are part of God's creation mandate for us. They should be desired because the Bible speaks of children as a blessing from the Lord. They should be desired because they are a primary means of making disciples. They should be desired because they are a means of caring for one another. They should be desired because they are are a means of personal growth in godliness in our own lives. Now, what if you're here this morning and you can't have children? Either because you're not married or because you're married but can't have children, what then? I think first of all, we can affirm everything we have just said about the good desire of children. Even if you can't or don't have your own. But infertility also forces us to address the fact that we live in a world broken by sin, don't we? 
Now, to be clear, infertility is not necessarily the result of personal sin, but it is a result of living in a fallen and broken world. In fact, some of the people that God used so powerfully in the Bible are those who struggled with infertility. People like Sarah, or Rachel, or Elizabeth, or Hannah, and their husbands. God is not deaf to the cries of his children when we cry to him to have children. And he's not blind and hard-hearted to the longings of our hearts for this particular blessing. And while God in his infinite wisdom does not promise to give every family a child, he does promise. He does promise to give us his grace and his comfort and his help and his peace and his strength. And he does promise to use all things even infertility in the life of his people for our good, even when it's incredibly painful, even when we can't see it. And I would add, if this is something you are dealing with this morning, don't keep it to yourself. You might be shocked and surprised just how many people around you have dealt with or are dealing with the same kinds of things. In fact, we as a church family exist to help and support and love and counsel with one another, especially, especially in our hurts. So tell someone. Share it at your small group. I can guarantee you, if you share it at your small group, you will be met with love and grace compassion, and men and women who will weep with you as you weep. And tell someone from the church, make it a matter of prayer in your Sunday school class. I happen to know all of the Sunday school teachers, and I can guarantee if you share that as a prayer need in your Sunday school class, that will not be taken lightly. And tell your prayer elder or his wife, but don't walk through this alone. Now, The command to fill the earth does involve procreation, does involve children, but there's more because the point of procreation is not just populating the earth with humans, but filling the world with God followers who commune with him and communicate his glory to the world. In other words, the blessing here from God is to make God-fearers who will fill the earth, spreading the glory of God. And this necessarily involves disciple-making. This is why I would argue that for those of us who now live in the New Covenant era, disciple-making is a proper application, alongside procreation, of the command to fill the earth. Let me say that again. For those of us living in the New Covenant era, disciple-making is a proper application, in addition to procreation, of the command to fill the earth. Not just because it sounds nice, 
or it's because it's something we can all do, but because it's the proper conclusion of that to which filling the earth points. It fulfills the spirit of what filling the earth is truly all about. Again, the point of filling the earth is not merely more people, but more image bearers relating to God and reflecting him. This is why one of Jesus' most famous commands for all of us is found in Matthew chapter 28, and Pastor Taylor alluded to this earlier. Go, therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations. Fill the earth and subdue it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." As Jesus was departing from the earth to return to the Father in heaven, he provides these final instructions to be carried out by his people until he returns. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and fill the earth with men and women, boys and girls from every corner of the globe who will know me, commune with me, and make me known, communicate the glorious truths about me. And this begins right here in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, so much of what follows, both in the Old Testament and then later in the New, is related to this. God filling the earth with God followers. We might think about Noah's instructions a little bit later in Genesis chapter 9 to fill the earth or God's promise to Abraham to make his offspring into a huge nation or God's protection and provision of his people to protect them to provide for them, even in famine and slavery and defeat and victory, conquest, exile and return. And in all of this, God is filling the earth with image bearers who love him and reflect his glory to the world. And all this begins here with God's commission to fill the earth. That's what it means. But that's not all we have here. The blessing of God, these instructions, this mission of God includes not only filling the earth, but also subduing it. Again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'll skip over to chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We are commanded to subdue the earth. And what does it mean to subdue the earth? Well, what it doesn't mean is that the earth is somehow needed taming, as though it was just this overgrown mess, like a neglected yard or a trail in the woods overrun by vines to which Adam and Eve were to overcome like you know Indiana Jones-esque explorers kind of subduing this unruly earth. No, that's not what it means. Rather, as John MacArthur helpfully writes, subduing speaks of a productive ordering of the earth and its inhabitants to yield its riches and accomplish God's purposes. It's about as good a definition of subduing the earth that I've read. Subduing the earth speaks of a productive ordering of the earth 
and its inhabitants to yield its riches and accomplish God's purposes. In fact, this term is used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of bringing something to the point at which it accomplishes that which it was designed for. In fact, this command to rule over or subdue creation is just one of the ways that we as humans are different than the rest of creation. We're commanded to to rule over, to steward the creation around us. Everything else has its part and has its place, but are generally, by and large, takers. And this is one of the reasons I think we should worship. Not only should we worship in response to God's good creation, but we should worship as we reflect on the fact that God's good creation is given to us by God, that we might rule over it and steward over it and have dominion of it in such a way that we reflect God's dominion over us. And this is what we see in so many of the church's songs throughout the generations. For example, one of the songs that the people of God would sing frequently is Psalm 8, and just listen to how we hear both in Psalm 8 the fact that God has created all things and in control of, over all things, and yet we should also praise him because he's given us a stewardship. He's given us dominion to subdue the world. O oh Lord, our Lord, the psalmist writes, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our How majestic is your name in all the earth. What an incredible privilege this is. That God would invite us and command us to enter into his caretaking of the world. Notice for the psalmist, this does not result in a puffed up prideful arrogance. Look at us as humans We get to steward, we get to subdue, we get to have dominion over the earth. No, it results in humble gratitude and worship to the Lord who rules and reigns over all things, who holds all things together by the word of his power and has entrusted to us as under shepherds the care, the gardening, the caretaking of the world that he owns. He invites us into the family business. We do that in a couple of distinct ways. First, we see here in Genesis 1.28 that we subdue the earth by exercising dominion over the animal kingdom. It's pretty clear. Verses 128. And here, I think it's 
important to remember that dominion is not domination. So the mandate is for humanity to govern creation and to facilitate its flourishing under God's ultimate rule. And this is one of the ways that we reflect the image of God to the world, that we communicate with our actions and our words and our lives and our priorities and our dreams and ambitions who God is and what he is like. In other words, we reign over the animal kingdom in a way that reflects God's reign over us. We are called to have dominion over the animal kingdom. But there's another way we are to subdue the earth, and it's by working and keeping the ground. Again, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Isn't it interesting that we don't know where Adam was created? We know that Adam was created from the dust of the ground, from the clay. And then we know that the Lord God took the man that he had created and placed him in the garden. We have no idea where he was created. Maybe that's actually a good thing so that we're not tempted to try to somehow find where Adam was created and scoop up some dust and put it in a Ziploc bag and feel like we're closer in touch with our humanity or something. Or no doubt some... some person somewhere would find a way to capitalize on it and charge people admission to walk across the ground or run their hands across the ground where life began. We don't know where Adam was created, but we do know that God intentionally and strategically put the man in the garden to work and keep the ground. We are all therefore caretakers. We're not the owners of the world We have been given certain responsibilities in our world to work it and keep it for the Lord, who is the rightful owner, as Psalm 24 reminds us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As Truffle Hunter said in Prince Caspian, it's not man's country, but it's a country for man to be king of. Creation is here for our good, but it's not here for us to do whatever we want with it. We are therefore to be be like the wise stewards in Luke chapter 12, Jesus' parable of the faithful steward who's faithful with what God has entrusted to us, and faithfulness is measured by using that which he's entrusted to us in the ways that he would want, that he would design, that he would plan. Keeping the ground also carries with it the idea of not only being a gardener, but a guardian. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But first, maybe a question, and the question is, how does this apply since so much of our work today doesn't involve the ground? I've not had the privilege of meeting all of you, of everyone, even everyone who's a member of CCF. But most of the members of CCF that I know of, our church family, are not farmers. In fact, most of us don't even have gardens. And so how does this apply since most of us don't work the ground? And I think the Lord gives us the answer to that right here in chapter 1, verse 29. Look at verse 29. The Lord said, or God said, behold, I have given you speaking to the man, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. 
we immediately jump to the fact that the Lord God provides fruit with seeds in it for his people. But what we sometimes overlook is the fact that God stresses the seed here. Because it's the seed that will feed his people. And yet, it's the seed that will need to be placed in the ground after the ground is cultivated. And it's the seed that will need to be planted and watered. And when God provides the growth, it's the seed that will need to be harvested and gathered together. And the cycle will go on and on and on. In other words, in other words God provides the means for food. But there's also a role for men and women to take that which God has provided and to work it and to cultivate it and to develop it. Maybe the best example we see is frequently when we bow our heads to pray before a meal and we thank the Lord for the food that he has provided for us. We rightly acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. We rightly acknowledge that God is the giver of everything. That the fact that we have food is owing to the fact that God has created us and made us, that he's provided oxygen for us to breathe. He's provided good work for us to do. He's provided rain that waters the ground and sun, which nourishes the crops. He's provided intelligence and wisdom for people to figure out how to get food that's grown in other places to us here. And all of that is because God is the source And yet, like in our home, when we pray, we also thank God for mom who went to the store and who bought the food, or for dad, (laughs) although there's usually less Thanksgiving when dad does the cooking, (laughs) my one thing I know how to sort of make. We recognize that, that God is the giver of all things, and yet he has a purpose and a plan for us to take what he's given and to work it and cultivate it and shape it and use it and develop it to the glory of God. And that's what all of us do. Even if we don't work the ground and tend to the crops, we build cities, we mine metals from the ground, we irrigate the land, we put people into space and send people into orbit, we solve problems, we divert rivers to water the ground, we write symphonies, we develop technology, we design architecture, we write novels and songs and screenplays and sermons, we paint paintings, we make our world beautiful, we research the the intricacies of the cell and the, the intricacies of the cosmos, we take from the matter that we have and we We use it and steward it and cultivate it and develop it to develop vaccines and medicines and cures. And in all of it, we are using what God has given to us like the seed and we are working it, cultivating it, using what God has given to us to make our world a little bit more like heaven a little bit at a time. And as we do that, we are reflecting the good creator God. In all of this, we are taking the seed, we're using the things, the order, the information that God has given to us, and we're developing it. We're working the world that God has made for his glory. And so it's clear then that we should work. And it's clear then, if all of that is true, that we should care about our work. We're reminded that this is before the fall, so work is pre-fall. And work will also be post-glorification. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to work. It won't be under the effects of the fall. It won't be toilsome and laborsome and frustrating. 
but it will be good work. And we are called to model that even now by working for the Lord and not for men. How do we do that? We do that by working in such a way that our work mirrors the goals and the priorities of heaven. Things like beauty and goodness and truth and virtue and excellence. You see, God has created beauty in our world, and at the same time, he gives us the mission of working and keeping it, which means we can look at a sunrise or a sunset, we can revel in the glories of our creator. We can say, oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we can sit and listen to a beautiful piece of music written and performed by a talented musician, and we can say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we can look at a beautiful piece of architecture, a building, or we can, we can observe a, a medical breakthrough in technology, and we can say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We had no part in the sunrise, and we did take part in the song written or the building designed or the lovely garden that might be planted by taking what God has made and arranging it after our creative God. And in both cases, we have a cause for worship. Because what we're ultimately called to do is to make this world a reflection of the glories of heaven. We're to mirror the original creation, because the original creation was designed not only to be a garden, but to be a temple. And this garden into which God placed the first man was unlike any garden we have ever seen. It was a glorious garden. In fact, we get a description of just some of the things about this garden here in Genesis chapter 2. Just look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Apishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Notice how this garden is filled with beauty. It's this amazing place, the trees, the land, the precious gems, the stones. In fact, the, the gems and stones mentioned here are seen later on because they are mentioned again in the temple. All of this beauty was because this was the place where God dwelt with humanity. The trees fresh air, the animals, without the effects of sin and the curse. But what was most amazing, as I said, was the fact that this garden was a temple because God dwelled, he lived with his people, Adam and then Adam and Eve. 
One theologian writes, the description of the Garden of Eden is echoed in the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple, leading to the conclusion that Genesis 2 presents creation as a cosmic temple, a holy dwelling place of God. The charge to Adam to fill the earth and subdue it is a priestly charge to expand the borders of Eden so that God's habitable dwelling will be the whole earth. In fact, the language used here of Adam working and keeping the garden is later used of the priests who work and kept the tabernacle. And that's the only other time it's used in Scripture. Now, we know, as we will see in Genesis chapter 3, that work is now hard. We know that it's frustrating and painful. And among other things, the fall, which brings about those consequences, the fall is the failure of humanity to properly exercise dominion. Adam allowed evil in the garden. He submitted to the will of the serpent rather than the will of God. He should have thrown the serpent out of the garden the moment he began speaking lies about God. Should have guarded himself and his bride and the garden, but he didn't. He failed to keep the garden, and as a result, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. As a result, our work is part of the curse. Toilsome work, frustrating work, work that never completely satisfies, sustains, gives us the joy we hope for. And this is terrible news, except it's not the only news. Because where the first Adam failed to fill the earth, subdue the earth, to keep the earth, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Who came into our world, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Completely to fulfill the mission of God, to rule over the creation, to subdue it, reflecting the glories of our triune God. And the good news is that even in Genesis chapter 3, we see the faint drumbeat of God drawing his people back to himself and the promise that one day this Messiah, Jesus Christ, would not fail to faithfully work and keep the world. So the garden reminds us not only of what went wrong, but the garden then through Jesus Christ reminds us of what is to come when Jesus Christ, the perfect second Adam, returns and makes a new heaven and a new earth. We will live with him forever, working joyfully about our master's business. And until that time, God invites us and commands us to enter into his filling and caretaking of our world. Yes, even our fallen and broken world, where we are called to fill the world with more God worshipers. And we are called to subdue the earth, to reflect the glories of heaven. So that our work, even just a little bit, reflects a corner, a light shaft from heaven revealed here below. And this is all a part of God's blessing of us. And this is something we all take part in, even if you can't work physically. We all take part in this. 
there is a role for all of us to use the time that we have been given, even if we can't cultivate the ground or cultivate employment full-time that we're paid for or part-time or volunteer, we're called to cultivate relationships, called to scatter the seed of the gospel, to irrigate a life of prayer and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, to nourish the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to yield a harvest of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit. And we do all of this then as Christians who follow the pattern of the second Adam who is both strong and sure but also gentle and not oppressive. He exercises dominion without being domineering. And he is our example and he is our hope. When time after time after time we fail as we will. He did not. And one day he will make all things new. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together.